Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Begin by Soho CRM. So let's face it, you don't have to use spreadsheets, notepads, reminders, and 10 other apps to manage your customer information like you may be doing today. Whether you're a startup, a small business, or a freelancer, did you know that you can manage your business as effectively as any large corporation? With the current market, it's more critical than ever to retain existing customers while also staying on top of your sales pipeline. And you can do this with your business today by saying no to spreadsheets. Begin supercharges your workflow and helps you engage prospects, manage pipelines, and close deals without skipping a single beat. It has a super simple drag and drop interface, which will have you up and running in under 30 minutes. All listeners of our podcast can get up to 15 days for free, the free trial, along with a 50% off and up to $100 when you sign up. Just go to Soho.to forward slash begin Pantera Advisor and get started. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So super excited about the guests that we have today. We're gonna be talking about building, scaling, financing, getting, you know, like a bunch of money over lunch. I mean, you name it. I mean, all the adrenaline in between. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Joshua Goldbart. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alejandro. I'm incredibly excited to be here. So originally born and raised in California, in Mulberry, and even your family, you know, was uh, involved in the incorporation of the town. So give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, so I grew up um, on the peninsula in just south of San Francisco. And it was a really interesting place because it was like a really high academic achieving area. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that a lot of people don't know this, but East Palo Alto, where Facebook now is, was actually like the deadliest city in America in the 90s when I was growing up. And so it was this very sort of peaceful, like high academic achieving area that was right next to a very rough area. And I think that that caused a lot of the kids to kind of mix together. And it really showed me that there are many different sides to life growing up. And I think it's something that has given me compassion for just the entire world. There's a lot of different human experience that people go through when they're young. And in your case, you even went through your own experiences very early on at 15. What happened? Yeah. So when I was 15, there was a series of medical things that happened in my family that resulted us in having what I would describe as a very shifting economic circumstances. It's a very common American thing to have like a run-in with the medical system and then have your entire life change. And so that's what happened to our family. And at 15, I started paying the family's mortgage and I have not missed a payment on the, the house that um, has been in my family since the 1920s, um, since I was 15 years old. And so wow. I think that's, that's what I consider to be my crowning artistic achievement in this life. But what did you learn from that experience from really dealing with pressure, dealing with uncertainty, dealing with the struggle? So two things really stand out to me. Uh, one is the kindness of others. I think that that is something that I, I just am continually humbled by in this life is just how kind people can be, particularly when you're struggling and particularly when you want to help yourself. I think that is, that is one of the biggest things that people look for in uh, opening up with compassion. 
The second thing is that there are a lot of times where you can be doing what you think is the right thing and it still doesn't work. It still doesn't solve your problem. And so you have to just calibrate to what is actually working, not what feel not what feels good. And that is a, a hard lesson that you learn as an entrepreneur if you want to survive. And retail was saying, you know, the path that you chose, uh, and in particular it was telecom, you know, and and you were you were quite the salesman, eh, at ATT. Well, it's funny that you say chose because the way that I got that job is I went to the most affluent street where I grew up, which is Bur uh, Burlingame Avenue. And I went and dropped a resume off at every store. And the only one that called me back was AT&T. And so that's how I got that job. It wasn't, you know, like I chose it. It was, you know, they were the only one who called me back. <laughs> he chose you. He chose you. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I, I started doing that job. And uh, I really liked working in cell phones because you're on like the cutting edge of new technology. You know, it's constantly being miniaturized. There's new stuff coming out all the time. And in particular, I, I had the privilege of working at AT&T during the launch of the iPhone, which was maybe the best time to ever be a salesperson in cell phones. We never had anyone line up for a cell phone before the release of the iPhone. And people like lined up around the store. It was crazy. We had to get, you know, upgraded security and all the offices. It, it was just wild. And so I was in a position to basically sell more cell phones than anyone in the history of selling cell phones. And I did. So I ended up being like the top salesperson on the West Coast. Uh, which was at that time, that was a, like a huge achievement in my life. It was, the, you know, I didn't have academic validation. So I got business validation. And that was very special to me at the time. And you were for about 10 years in telecom. So uh, yeah. what, uh, what, 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 what was that push, would you say, that, that gave you a sense of maybe there's something out of this segment or this industry? So I want, I want to preface this just a little bit in foreshadow and say that what you learn in telecom is that the world is composed of networks of glass and copper. There's this web of interconnection that binds everything together. And there are applications that run on these networks, the internet. And some of them are more are moving at a, a different pace. Some of them are growing really rapidly. And if you can find the ones that are high growth, that's where you want to be. So I had gotten laid off from this job. Uh, it, was, it was a PM job at a, a at what's called an MVNO. They're basically a reseller like T-Mobile. And my friend said to me, he's like, hey, Josh, you should take all your severance. I think I, I, it was like $10,000. And you should take all your severance and you should put it into Ethereum right now. And I had read Satoshi's white paper in like 2009. And I just assumed that like, it was going to fail the same way that eGold and all, you know, Liberty Reserve and all the other attempts at doing digital cash had failed before this. So I, I kind of wrote Bitcoin off. And I ignored it, you know, to my peril for years. And then finally, I was there and I, it was, you know, 2015 or 2016. And I just kept saying like, this isn't happening. It's, it's not real. It's going to go away. It's a fad. And then I said, what happens if I just, you know, try it? So I did. And Ethereum went from, you know, like 20 bucks, 30 bucks, something like that to 400 basically overnight. And that was the first time in my life that I was not living paycheck to paycheck. It's the first time that I wasn't like completely struggling every two weeks just to make ends meet. And I went to my friend and I said, Hey, like, is it going to keep doing that? And he said, Yeah, Josh, welcome to crypto. And obviously, crypto doesn't always go up as we we all know. But this was a very lucky time to be interested in going into crypto. But he had already put all of his money into crypto. And I had already put all my money into crypto. And so we asked each other, you know, what do you do? And he kind of jokingly said, you should start a hedge fund, we should start a hedge fund. 
And we did. So we got, you know, like a, a million dollars from friends and we just basically plowed it into Ethereum and Bitcoin. And that was the right time to do it because it basically just started going crazy from there. That was like the big run up that led to, you know, Bitcoin being tens of thousands of dollars. I think our first time we bought Bitcoins, it was like a thousand bucks. And the whole time this was happening, the whole time that, that Bitcoin and Ethereum were increasing in value, I kept asking myself, why is there no consumer facing crypto product? Why isn't there something that's just like insanely easy to use like PayPal? And I think if I knew what I knew today, I would not have tried to build something like that because it is so hard to make a product that feels easy to use in crypto. But I, I guess I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Why don't you walk us through that launch that you had with an investor? Yeah, so we had written a three-page white paper. And so it wasn't you know, a very long white paper. It was only three pages long and it had just a few key ideas. The key ideas were that it has to be really fast. It has to cost almost nothing to use. It has to work on a cell phone and it has to be extremely private, private enough for the most advanced messaging cases in the world. We wanted to put something in the time into like Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp and Signal Messenger. Those are the kind of like three things that we thought we were going to do. And so we went to lunch with an investor and flown in and we actually got thrown out of the hotel that we were supposed to have lunch in that he was like renting the top floor of. We arrived two minutes late for lunch. And, you know, this guy's like a billionaire. And I thought he was just going to like flip the table and freak out at them. But he just said, hey, Josh, do you know somewhere else around here to eat? He didn't freak out, didn't, you know, didn't get upset or anything. He just walked across the street. And so we're sitting in this like random little uh, Japanese eatery. And we get like salmon bowls for lunch. And at, at the end of it, he says, Josh, this sounds like a good idea. Here is a thumb drive with $1.5 million of Bitcoins on it. You figure out the terms. Like we didn't even, we didn't even have deal terms. We didn't have a wow. contract. And I just, that taught me so much about investing. What I learned from that man is that trusting an entrepreneur is actually really the only choice that you have as an investor. And companies that are, are not powerfully founder-led, companies that are not, they, they don't get off the ground. You need somebody who's just like going to, you know, light themselves on fire to make this thing happen. And they need really deep trust and, you know, a feeling of like this person is in it with me to be able to do that. And what do you think this investor is showing you to just give you the money like that without any type of legal agreement? I think that he had enough of a reputation that if I had really cheated him on the deal, it would have been hard for me to like do anything with the company. Um, he, he is a, a person who has a tremendous amount of Bitcoins. So he's very well known in the cryptocurrency industry. So I think if you, if you, do, if you do a bad deal with somebody like that, if they don't feel good about it, you're going to have a hard time reputationally with other people in cryptocurrency. It's a small space. So I think that that was the number one thing is that he didn't have a lot to lose in that deal. Um, the other thing is that the white paper, although it was short, was very clear. And most white papers in crypto are extremely confusing. So then what happened next after you had the money? So after I had the money, I went back to my computer science friends because I'm, I'm a high school dropout. I don't, I don't write code. Um, I, I think I understand computers pretty well, but I am not a person who could make mobile coin by myself, just to be super clear. And I could not have written that white paper without lots of help from lots of people. So I went back to the same people who helped me write it. And I said, hey, you know, I got $1.5 million. I'm ready to do a startup. And they just kind of looked at me like I was crazy. And they said, Josh, 
you are not going to build a cryptocurrency for one and a half million dollars. And I, I very naively said, I said, how much money do I need? And they said, Josh, you need like 20 or $30 million. And so I said, okay, how can I get that kind of money based on where the company is? Um, I guess what we'll do is we will write a SAFT, which is called a safe agreement for future tokens. And we'll see if investors want to give us the money. Otherwise, I'll give the money back to this first investor. So we showed it to a series of investors, uh, including Binance, and they really liked the idea. And so we ended up getting uh, $30 million to do the company. So then I went back to all my, my computer science friends and I was like, hey, I got $30 million. And they all kind of look at me and they just go, what? Who gave you $30 million? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm really determined to do this thing. Uh, do you want to help me? And one by one, really smart people just started joining the thing. And I think the reason that they joined was that I was very clear about what I knew and what I did not know. And I made it really clear what was going to be their responsibility, what was my responsibility. I'm going to keep the lights on and they have to write beautiful code. And that, that's the deal. And I'm not, I, I can help them think about it intellectually from a place of being a very ignorant person in this space, but I'm not going to do the math for them and I'm not going to do the cryptography for them. That kind of stuff is candy for an engineer. Like they want hard problems. And just to, um, for the people that are listening to, how much capital in total have you guys raised for this? About $140 million at this point. And what has been the experience of going from one cycle to the next to, to get to all that money? In the beginning, uh, you can raise money on a, on a white paper. And then at certain points in the future, you need different levels of traction and different levels of proof that the business that you're building is working and has a huge addressable market that you can possibly get a big slice of. And at each stage of funding, you basically have more and more proof that is required that you are on the right path and doing the right thing. We're now in a funding cycle where the world is right now where if you don't have extreme proof of the viability of your startup, you cannot raise money at all. It's not like it was a few years ago where you could you know, basically show up with a white paper and raise a lot of money. You need a ton of signals now to get a real round together. And I think that that is hardening a lot of startups. It's making better startups now. So I, I think that the startups that do get funded in this cycle, they're doing the right things and they're passing an extremely high level of validation when they get funded. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. As a founder, you need to always be in problem-solving mode and really being faced with challenging situations, whether it's with life or with the business itself, you need to find a way to find the, the better solution, the solutions that are going to help you to really overcome that roadblock. And a therapist, a therapist like, for example, the ones that BetterHelp matches you with could be a good option for you. And I mean, I remember, for example, for myself with relationships, with experiences, I've used therapy in the past and it really helped with unloading depression, anxiety. So BetterHelp is a really good solution. You could try it because it's convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's entirely online where you can get matched with a therapist that could be the right fit for you. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DealMakers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash DealMakers. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept 
really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike sieverson to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. What ended up being mobile coin and, and, and how do you guys make money? What's the business model there? Yeah, so mobile coin makes a cryptocurrency network. It is used in the world's most demanding messaging clients. Signal Messenger, Mixing Messenger, these are high performance, privacy protecting messaging clients. Signal, for example, is the only messaging app in the world that is trusted by the United States Senate and the European Parliament, which are some of the most secure and demanding infrastructure and, and conversations that happen in the world. If it wasn't actually private and it didn't work, those kind of people would not trust it as their method of choice for communicating. So we built a cryptocurrency that's now natively in Signal. And Signal end-to-end -end encrypts your messages so that only you and the person you're messaging can see them. We end-to-end -end encrypt your money, so only the person that you're transacting with and you can see your payments. And that's the beauty of what we've made, is that it's really fast, it's really easy to use. You don't type a big, long cryptocurrency address in, you just type a phone number. And that's the way that the system works. And I think that that is the, the holy grail of crypto communication is phone numbers and usernames, that's the way you send payments, and having it tightly integrated so you don't think about the crypto, it just works. Why would that be so important, you know, encrypting, you know, the money? I mean, why would people be so concerned around the privacy, you know, on, on how that happens? Give us some examples. Send me your tax return. Let's look at it together right now. I'm going to tweet it. Send me how much you get paid for this podcast and all, you know, all, all the deals you've done in your life and every deal and give me every one of those, and we're gonna tweet them together. And then we're gonna show everyone who's ever transacted with you in relation to all that money forever. Sounds pretty crazy, right? It really does. That's Bitcoin, that's Ethereum, that's how that works right now. Like that is not the way that e-commerce works. You don't go on amazon.com and everything you buy in your cart and how much you paid for it and where the money came from that you paid for it, that's not public. Yeah. Human society to do commerce requires a level of privacy. If you remember the internet, like before e-commerce, people didn't transact with credit cards. You would like send a bank wire or do an ACH and it took forever. And it was only when we invented encryption for sending messages over the internet in a way that scaled massively, SSL, TLS, that e-commerce took off. Blockchain commerce requires blockchain encryption. We have not seen anything like what the commerce is going to look like in a blockchain decentralized world until we have layer one privacy protecting protocols that everyone uses. 
So tell us about also funding aid, because you guys were quite active with the war in Ukraine. Yeah. So the war in Ukraine is, it's a crazy thing. And I think that the, the beginning of the war in particular, there was a tremendous amount of suffering uh, of the Ukrainian people because a lot of the infrastructure went down. One of the things that they were able to get back up pretty quickly was cellular networks. But the banking system in Ukraine was damaged very deeply at the beginning of the war. Um, there essentially was only only cash as the way that you could operate. And then they were starting to bring bank accounts back online. But sending aid into Ukraine was very difficult. What we did is we basically said, you know, we're working with these NGOs. They have people that they know in Ukraine that are doing real medical aid work. Um, this is not funding the war. This is funding medical aid very specifically. It's, you know, buying clothes for people. It's buying medicine, uh, you know, gas to keep the generators on. That that goes directly to civilians who need it. That's it. And so what they would do is basically we get a list of phone numbers that were in signal. We would message them to confirm who they were. There'd be you know, a series of messages that did that. And then we would just send money to them. And they instantaneously had money. And they didn't have to learn how Bitcoin worked. They didn't have to go set up a wallet. We, they just turned on the payments and signal and that was it. And the beauty of that is that Vitalik very famously said that he had to use Tornado Cash, which was the recent thing that was sanctioned by OFAC in order to send money into Ukraine because he was afraid of retribution from the Russians. Mobilecoin is just encrypted by default. And so that saved a lot of people who wanted to donate from possibly being attacked and risking their security and, and but still being able to help workers that were doing aid work in Ukraine. So I think that's a really big difference and one of the major reasons that people need privacy. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to be hacked by the Russians because you sent a payment to someone to buy medicine, right? That's that's not a thing that anybody wants. And you were talking about this earlier on how Senate and and the parliament in 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 Europe has uh, embraced, you know, what you guys are doing. Now, I guess you know, to get it to that point, probably there's been a tremendous amount of lessons learned. So I guess when it comes to launching a cryptocurrency that is legal and what to do and what not to do, you know, in order to really accomplish that, I mean, what have you learned? Wow. If you told me that we would be sitting here, you know, in September of 2022, and there would still not be any clear regulations on what it takes to launch a cryptocurrency in the United States, I would have told you you're crazy. I'm, you know, I'm six years into working at MobileCoin at this point, and there's still no regulatory clarity about what is and what is not legal to launch a cryptocurrency at all. And so you talk to 10 different lawyers, you will get 10 different opinions, even right now. And, you know, Bitcoin's almost, you know, it's approaching two decades old at this point. You know, it's, it's, you know, let's say 14, 15 years at this point. And there's still, it's still not clear whether if you launched Bitcoin today, whether it would be legal or not. And, you know, we're you're approaching two decades. So I think that the government and the regulators owe us a lot of clarity on what is and what is not legal. In the absence of that, you have to predict what is the most conservative possible, possible way that you can launch this. And that slows down innovation a lot. But what we ended up doing is that we created MobileCoin outside of the United States because there was no clarity in the United States about what was and what was not legal. And so we you know, worked with people who are not in the US. Um, we, the people who supported the activation traveled outside of the United States. Uh, we actually met up in Tahiti to do the activation. 
And that was because we just had no clarity about what was okay in the United States. Even today, we don't know. So we had, we just had to be very conservative and it cost a lot of money. It slowed us down. This is a way that America is really far behind the world when it comes to innovation right now. Yeah, no kidding. Now, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world, let's say five years later. And in that world, the vision of MobileCon is fully realized. What does that world look like? Great technology is indistinguishable from magic. The thing that we're building is a Rosetta Stone for global commerce. What that means is that you can send money with privacy, not just to anyone in the world, but in the currency that they want. Do they want mobile coins? They get mobile coins. Do they want dollars? They get dollars. Do they want euros? They get euros. All this happens instantaneously in you know a couple seconds. It costs basically nothing. And you end up having this just magical experience where all of the things that we take for granted with PayPal and Venmo and you know services like that, they just happen. And they happen non-custodially, which is a completely different regulatory regime from custodial wallet services. Right now, the way that people interact with uh, institutions and interact with the regulatory system is all at regulated institutions. The, the reporting requirements, the capital requirements, the management requirements, they're all at regulated institutions. The laws between peers are extremely different, particularly cross-border. So I think what we see is a level of commerce that the world has never imagined before. What we want is to create an extreme economic engine that amplifies global commerce worldwide. And we want to do this by breaking down the barriers between people so that people can just interact with one another peer to peer in a way that they've never thought of doing before. And they can do this in a way that feels like PayPal, like Venmo, like those kinds of services, but at a scale and a velocity and with privacy that they've never imagined before. And I think with that kind of with that kind of feature set, with that kind of uh, th those kind of benefits for the customer, the level of commerce you're going to see is like nothing we've ever imagined. You'll be able to safely transact directly with a factory on the other side of the world, and both of you can know the payment completed in one second. That is just beautiful. And Josh, and for for this project now with MobileCoin. you know, can you give us maybe like for the people that are listening, like um, any insights or maybe you know, anything you can share around perhaps employees or anything else, you know, that you feel comfortable sharing for the people that are listening to get an idea on the scope and size of MobileCoin? Yeah. Um, so MobileCoin is about 70 employees right now. Uh, MobileCoin is about 70 employees right now. And we have been growing uh, pretty rapidly. And the organization continues to build very deeply during this winter cycle of crypto. What we're working on now is making all of the technology that we've built even easier to use making it so that you can load money into the system and get money out of the system with the same fluidity with which you can transact. That means that you can you know, put a debit card down, get money in instantly. You can put a debit card down and get money out instantly. And all the transactions in the network are still incredibly private, incredibly fast and compliant. This is one of the things that MobileCoin is extremely proud of that we've, I think, nailed and other organizations in our space are still kind of struggling with, which is how do you have privacy and compliance at the same time? Our view as an organization is that there's absolutely no point in making money that you cannot spend. So we've spent a lot of time making sure that you have this privacy that you want, 
to protect yourself from the bad things in the world. And you can still spend your money at the institutions that you interact with every day, places like Amazon, places like Target. So I think that is the big differentiator for mobile coin is that it's not just fast. It doesn't just work on a cell phone. It's not just the most private cryptocurrency. It is compliant with regulators and you can use it right now. If, if you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, at MobileCoin and at Moby, M-O-B-Y underscore app are the two best places to follow us. And I just want to say that there's a lot of innovation coming down the pipe right now. And you were talking about earlier about the winter, the winter seasonality thing with crypto. How, what, ha, what have you experienced when it comes to cycles in crypto? Because you've been around it for a while and, and, and obviously, you know, we're coming from the summer months, you know, where... Even on this last cycle, you know, institutions got involved and really write it up. Uh, and now it sounds like uh, winter, as you said, you know, it's here. So what have you learned about cycles in crypto? The worst thing that you can do in crypto is to sell your crypto at the bottom of a cycle. It's just like, it's the worst thing because it causes you to like mentally get out of it so that when the boom cycle comes in, you don't think it's real. For most people, the single best thing that they can do is just to never sell their crypto. Uh, the, the volatile assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, that kind of stuff. Because you, you just aren't going to pay attention enough to the market to try to trade the swings. And even if you're paying attention, most of the time you're wrong. Now, what I've noticed is that in crypto, there are cycles that occur. It goes up, it goes down. In the stock market, there are also cycles that occur. What I've noticed about crypto is that the cycles are shorter typically than the stock market, at least right now. And so there have been periods, you know, 10 years, even longer in the stock market where stocks were depressed. But typically right now, what we're seeing are relatively short depression cycles and long boom cycles. And so I, I think that that's what we're going to see. It's not at all clear to me that we're at the bottom of winter yet right now, just to be clear. I think that there's still a lot of very shaky things that are happening in the world economy right now. But I do think we're going to get back to a boom time at some point in the future. And crypto is the asset class that I want to be in. I believe that out of all the asset classes that exist, crypto is the one that's going to recover fastest from this sort of like global economic winter. And if I was to put you, Josh, in a time machine and I bring you back, you know, perhaps to that moment that, uh, that you were, you know, coming across the Satoshi white paper and figuring out, you know, maybe that you wanted to do something on your own and. If you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self and giving your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Stop. Don't build a business, go buy Bitcoin. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually had a friend uh, sit me down in like 2011 or 2012. And basically he said, Josh, I want you to buy Bitcoin. I will, I will help you buy Bitcoin. Give me $100. Just trust me. Just do that. Like, it's, it's a couple dollars right now. It was a few cents. You should really consider doing this. And I think it, it was the first time that it, like, went to 1000 and then, like, clawed back to, like, a, a couple hundred dollars or something like that. And I just said, this is too volatile for me. I need to, you know, take care of things at home. I don't have extra money for this. And he said, all right. Just, you know, don't forget that we had this conversation and I've never forgotten that conversation. It just, it, it eats me up uh, even today. So I think when, when people do that to you, when they, they sit you down and they're trying to tell you something like that, give them a hundred dollars. You know, you can find a hundred dollars, uh, you know, you can scrape it together, you can save it. You can get a hundred dollars to take a flyer on something like that. 
And you will regret the things, most of the things that you don't do and don't try. And the things that you do try, you know, they, they don't all work out, but some of them will. You just have to try enough things. I hear you. So, George, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah. So uh, you can just follow us on Twitter uh, at MobileCoin, at Moby underscore app. Those are the best ways to follow the information that's happening in MobileCoin. We're super active on there. We also have a Discord. It's just the MobileCoin official Discord. And you can find both of these on MobileCoin.com. And if you uh, if you follow us on Twitter, you're going to get the fastest, best updates on what's happening in MobileCoin. I love it. Well, Josh, it has been an honor to have you with us on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you so much for your time here. This has been a sincere pleasure. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. This has been a wonderful experience. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.